I remember being a young bishop and having a member of my ward tell me they don't believe as they used to, and they have begun to question their faith. The hardest part of these scenarios was that it felt like they were looking to me for answers, when in reality, they were coming to me looking for support and hope. These leadership scenarios can quickly remind you how unprepared you might be to minister to individuals or loved ones in your life who've begun to question their faith. This is why Leading Saints created the Questioning Saints Library, where we interviewed over 20 experts with the intent to better understand how we can help individuals who are starting to question their faith. For all the details on how you can access the Questioning Saints Library, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash questioning. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash questioning. Hey everyone, we have another podcast favorite podcast again, Whitney Johnson, the author of some phenomenal books like Disrupt Yourself and Build an A-Team. I love having Whitney Johnson on, and I knew that uh, I've found this little uh, opportunity window right now that there's so many phenomenal people that I would love to interview out there, but sometimes they travel so much or they're just such so high demand, but now not much traveling is going on. So I want to make sure I included Whitney in uh, having her back on the podcast and talking more in depth about disruption because right now we've all felt a level of disruption when it comes to our leadership church experience. Am I right? That the, sometimes we have to be proactive in finding the disruption. Other times the disruption comes to us and knocks on our door and says, hi, I'm a pandemic. Let me disrupt your life. Uh, but if you're new to Leading Saints, I first must mention, welcome. And I'm glad you found us. Whoever recommended you to come here, so whoever sent you a link, make sure you give them a good solid elbow bump the next time you see them, because this is hopefully so valuable for you that they've found value to share with you. Now I'm just rambling. But Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And so we do that uh, in a variety of ways. One big way is we have this podcast where we talk with interesting people about leadership concepts in the context of the church. If you go to leadingsaints.org, You'll find thousands of articles written by all sorts of different authors that share their leadership experience or perspective, and it's a great place to be. And uh, we rely on your donations to continue this mission forward. So while you're at leadingsaints.org, be sure to hit the donate button. So here is my interview with Whitney Johnson, the author of Disrupt Yourself and Build an A-Team. Today, I have the opportunity to connect with Whitney Johnson all the way on the other side of the country. How are you, Whitney? I'm fine, Kurt. It's great to be with you. It's, yeah, it's good to have you back. I think we were trying to remember how many times you've been on the podcast. I think this is your third time, but hopefully not your last time. Uh, but you're, you're, we always appreciate the perspective you bring to uh, church leadership. Oh, well, thank you. And third time's so, a charm, right? That's right. We'll see. This may be the best yet. Uh, we'll <laughs> see. So, so uh, I'm curious. Uh, you always have. We always have to check in here. You know how how life's going. What what you're working on. Those types of things. Um, what's what's been your main focus lately? Yeah. So it's been interesting because as we're doing this recording, we're right in the middle of COVID nineteen, and um, one of the things that's been fascinating for me is that 
typically for my work, I travel a lot. One of the big pieces of my business model is that I do keynote speeches all around the world. And so one of the things that I've been working on, which has been fascinating, is um, figuring out how to reinvent our business model. What does it look like when you're not traveling and, and speaking, et cetera, and, which is good because I talk about personal disruption. So probably important that I'm able to, to walk my talk. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, you talk a lot about personal disruption and sometimes we have to be very proactive in, in finding that disruption in life. But sometimes it just comes to your doorstep like the the pandemic. Right. Absolutely. You know, it's so interesting. Like you said, you know, oftentimes I'll be talking to people and trying to figure out how I can instruct and inspire them to disrupt themselves. It's important to do. And now it's like, you know what, now we don't have to decide, we don't get to decide if we're going to disrupt ourselves. We don't have to make that decision because it's been made for us. We've all been disrupted. And so now the question is, what will we do? Have yeah. we been disrupted? Nice. And so, I mean, is there like a typical 10-step uh, process or six-step process that you're going through to figure that out? Or is it mainly just a lot of reflection and, and regrouping as you move your business forward? Oh, for me and my business, are you saying? Uh, yeah, well, just like the process of you've oh. recognized the disruption. So how do you regroup and, and move forward with it? Yeah, well, we could spend the entire conversation on this. I mean, one of the things that happened is, and, you know, just quick background. I worked with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School and discovered disruptive innovation. And we were applying that to investing. And I can tell you the backstory if you want, but I think you probably have it on other podcasts. But one yeah. of the big... Um, insights for me was that this whole theory of disruption that we were applying to products and companies and, and, and services could actually be applied to individuals. And so one of the things I've been doing really over the last eight years now is figuring out how do you apply this framework to us as individuals. And so in reinventing my business, I'm applying that framework of how do you play where no one else is playing? How do you play to your distinctive strengths? We've got lots of constraints. How do we apply those? Um, so really applying that framework because you apply it to individuals, but you can also apply it to your business. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to jump in uh, here in a little bit about uh, the, you know, maybe how we, some ideas or uh, principles of handling the disruption that all church leaders are facing right now. You know, some areas are starting to get back to church, but then it's a question of, well, are we are we going to pull back again and all these things, right? And so, but I first want to maybe just talk about your experience with uh, Clayton Christensen, who I've read many of his books, and he's just such a leader in the leadership world. And I had been emailing with his assistant for about 12 to 18 months of getting him as, as a guest on the podcast, because I know he would he would love to talk about some of his research in the context of, of the church and, and had done so before. And it broke my heart to, when I had the news went public of his passing. And maybe just tell us, if people aren't familiar with Clayton Christensen, uh, maybe give us a little bit of background and then where you fit into his story. I cannot imagine that anybody listening to your podcast is not familiar with him. <laughs> right? If they, if they are, you should be ashamed of yourself. So. <laughs> I have to say, I do think it's the timing is really interesting, right? He passes away literally a month before COVID hits the United States at a time where missionary work, for those of you who aren't familiar, he wrote a book called The Power of Everyday Missionaries, where missionary work needed to be completely overhauled in terms of how we're doing it. And it just seems 
quite, I don't know, coincidental, and yet Einstein said that coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous, that now Clayton is on the other side of the veil, probably helping figure out all sorts of innovative ways to move missionary work <laughs> forward. Right. Um, but anyway, so so Clayton wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. He's really known for disruptive innovation. If you know business at all, you've you've heard of this idea. And, and the notion is that this silly little thing will take over the world. Um, like the, the telephone did to the telegraph, like the automobile to, did the horse and buggy. And more recently, we see Netflix disrupt Blockbuster. And so he's the person behind that theory and, and really famous throughout the world. I mean, Walter Isaacson in the biography of Steve Jobs oh, said right. that this was one of the most influential books in the life of Steve Jobs. So, I mean, that kind of weight and heft within the, within the business world and in some of the most important innovators of our time. So I had connected with Clayton, um, really, I think it was probably in 2004, I read his book, The Innovator's Dilemma. I was intrigued by it. I had this thought of, I think this doesn't just apply to products and services, it applies to people. I was still working on Wall Street and had this sense of like, I think this applies to me too. And so eventually left Wall Street, became an entrepreneur. We had now moved to Boston and um, ended up working and called in a calling of public affairs reporting into him. He was the area authority at the time and um, had the privilege of being able to be responsible for public affairs. And I know that you're going to actually have Mark Johnson on the podcast shortly. Yep. I got acquainted with his wife, Jane Clayson Johnson, in public affairs, all reporting into Clayton. And so that's really how I got to know him. And um, then he wanted to launch a fund to invest in disruptive innovation. And he knew of my background on Wall Street and asked me if I would join him and his son as a founding partner in that fund. So what was interesting to me about Clayton is, is as I reflect on him outside of my family, I would say there is no person who has had a greater influence on me. Um, between working with him in public affairs and then working with him in this business context for six or seven years, one of the things I think was most meaningful to me is that he was the same at work and at church. You know, I would see him bring all of his intellectual firepower that he used um, in the classroom, at in the um, academy at Harvard. He would bring it to his church calling. I mean, I would see letters and analysis that he had written, sending it to the brethren, for example. But then I would yeah. also see him be willing to bring his his spiritual life to his secular life. I'm sitting in meetings and having him. I remember he was talking to the former CEO of Telefonica um, España. And he's like talking about his children and how they're on missions. And he had on his website this um, his, you know, why I belong and what I believe. Like he was just fearless in terms of talking about the gospel. So when he wrote The Power of Everyday Missionaries, he was living that. And and I remember, though, at the time, and it's certain sort of influence for me is I was like, I cannot believe you have your testimony on your work website. I just remember being shocked <laughs> and appalled. Like, how can he do that? That's so scary. That's so daring. And yet I realize I understand now. And he is always sort of in the back of my mind as I go about my work. How can I talk about God? Or how can I talk about faith? Or how can I talk about what I believe when I'm delivering a keynote or when I'm doing a LinkedIn live or when I'm on a podcast of how do we every day talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so um, I will always be grateful that I got to work with him and for him. But that's like, for me, the legacy is talking about the gospel 
of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ or the gospel at every turn. Yeah. And that's what was so helpful to me about that book is just, it doesn't have to be like these awkward uh, approaches in the office with a Book of Mormon saying, hey, Jerry, would you mind reading this book? It's really special, right? Like uh, just like including this verbiage in our day-to-day life that don't just say, oh, I spent two years in Zimbabwe for no reason at all. I just spent two, but I was actually a missionary there and this is what I did. And and just being more open about it in a casual way. And it's not about pushing anything on anybody, but just living it. And he was such a great example of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're like, so what are your children doing? Well, my son, you know, is, well, he's not now, but my son's on a mission for our church in Brazil, like instead of hiding it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that's an important legacy of his. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you a question that's probably impossible to answer, but uh, let's let's give it a go here. So it, it, I, I was always he was always top on my bucket list of individuals to interview on the podcast because individuals like him they just have this lifetime and multiple lifetimes it seems of knowledge of research of perspective and then to match it with the intellect he carried. Um, I'm always curious like what would he want to talk about in an hour interview and so. What do you think? If I were, if I could go back in time and make that interview happen, what are some principles that come to mind? Do you think that he would start with? Yeah, he would want to take the framework of disruptive innovation and see the world through that lens. And if he were having the conversation with you, he would want to talk about the gospel. And he would want to, and I have this quote right in front of me because I figured you were going to ask me about this. (laughs) He would want to, and in fact, I'm going to read it to you, is this quote from How Will You Measure Your Life? And he would want to have this conversation and I'll read it. While many of us might default to measuring our lives by summary statistics, such as number of people presided over, number of awards or dollars accumulated in a bank, and so on, the only matter to my life are the individuals whom I've been able to help one by one to become better people. And when I have my interview with God, our conversation will focus on the individuals whose self-esteem I was able to strengthen, whose faith I was able to reinforce, and whose discomfort I was able to assuage a doer of good, regardless of what assignment I had. These are the metrics that matter in measuring my life. Oh, so good. I mean, it's so good. It makes you miss them even more. It right? does. And you know what Kurt's so wonderful is I went to his funeral and what's fascinating is, I mean, it was, it was, it, we were in a stake center and it went all the way back to the cultural hall and every single person that talked all felt that they were the most important person in the world, including all five of his children. It was really a really powerful, lovely moment. Yeah. And it really does go back to that principle. There's that one-to-one ministry, right? That Mm -hmm. no matter who it is, who's in front of you, like they're the most important person. And, uh, and that's, that's powerful. Yeah. I I have to tell you one more story that really, really was meaningful to me. He, one of his children, I don't remember who, um, during the eulogies said that when he first started teaching, he was getting his ratings back and he was sort of middling, you know, not a great teacher. And we all know that when he passed away, he was considered a great teacher. And what turned it for him is that before he would go into a class, he would pray. And Mm. that was so impactful for me and really made me think like every time you and I get on a zoom call, you know, we have this conversation that we're having right now. We are interviewing someone We're whatever it is we're doing, are we taking a moment and praying and thinking about the person that we're about to, to talk to? And I think, and, and once he started praying about his students, that really turned the tide in terms of his ability to influence their lives. 
Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Great. Such a great example. And, and, you know, I'm reflecting back on that quote you read by him that so many times it's easy to define ourselves, you know, I, I, well, it's easy to sort of say, yeah, I shouldn't define myself in my secular roles or accomplishments. I get that. But, it, it, but I, I think I'm, you know, I need to be in certain callings to show that God's not disappointed in me. And, and, you know, but to even in that context, put that aside and say, really the calling doesn't matter. Like the ministry can still happen with each individual. It's the ministering. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Any other thoughts uh, or principles do you think uh, he'd want to touch on? Is that that good summary? Yeah. Doer of good, regardless of what assignment I had. I think that for me encapsulates it. Perfect. So let's talk about as far as like disruption that we're uh, all feeling at this point in, in leadership. And, um, you know, there's, I've gotten the emails from the bishops and Relief Society presidents who th- were so engaged and on a roll and are finding some momentum. And now they're, they think, man, I don't, I'm having a really hard time finding purpose and uh, intention in all this. And so where, where should we start this conversation as far as disruption in the context of, of this pandemic and in our church callings? Yeah, it's such a good question. So maybe let's start with my own experience. So I just got called probably, I think it was in February to be in the Stake Relief Society presidency. So I'm, I'm the counselor responsible for missionary work. And um, I, you know, we started off and we were really excited. And, you know, one sort of big part of your calling is that you go do training and, you know, you visit the wards, et cetera. And Right. We did one training, maybe two trainings, and then the pandemic happened. And so all of a sudden, I didn't know and had not met in person a lot of the people over whom I had stewardship. And so that's been a really interesting challenge of, and I think this goes back to this idea of the one is how do you minister to people? How do you develop a relationship with people that you haven't actually met in person? And while I'm comfortable with Zoom, because I use it every day with my work, Um, I also know that a lot of people don't use Zoom all the time. And so it's not super comfortable for me to say, well, let's develop a relationship having a call over Zoom. And so that's been an interesting challenge. I I will say one thing that I discovered um, is that I, you know, we would talk to our Relief Society president, like, what do we need to do? And it felt like, okay, we need to really focus on praying about the people that we're ministering to, we're working with, you know, pray to them, pray about them by name. Also really listen to the spirit and, and um, send out emails or communications that seem to make sense, even when they don't, I'll give you a great example. So around Mother's Day, I was like, okay, I'm going to send out an email around Mother's Day and how sometimes it's hard to have Mother's Day. And no one responded, right? So that's one of the things too I'm finding is I'll send out these, you know, text messages or emails and like no one responds. I'm like, okay, I am doing a terrible job with my calling. (laughs) But then a couple weeks later, our um, Stake Relief Society president said, let's do a Zoom call presidency meeting. So with the presidency of that ward, with the Stake Relief Society presidency. And two things happened, which were really valuable and really good is while people may not want to do things one-on-one, We have found that by having presidency to presidency and her just opening it up and saying, let's talk about these four questions. Like, tell us about a time, you know, what's it like having church at home? Tell us about your experience and then asking people to share that experience. Well, as we did that, one of the sisters said, oh, yeah, I'm about to go home. Um, I've been, I've been really nervous about going home. So she's a younger sister, just newly married. And she said, but then, oh, yeah you sent me that email 
about, I think it was the, are we not all mothers by Sherry do. And she said, yeah. that really made me feel better. And I thought, oh, okay. So we are able to have an impact. It may not just be quite so obvious because we're not seeing people face to face. So that's been an interesting challenge. And I think it requires that we're actually willing to be more reliant on the spirit. Yeah. And, and it sounds like, you know, not just uh, what you can do, but how it's structured, right? Like you found a, a structure or a venue in which you could maybe communicate effectively and, and which worked well and you, you went with it. Yeah. But you know what, Kurt's also been interesting is I've had a couple of people who I minister to who've said to me, don't reach out to me so much. Like it's, it's too much. They're like, yeah. we're good. We're good. We don't <laughs> need it. And you're like, oh yeah, like you have to remember some people need more, some people be let need less. And so that's been an interesting thing as well. Have you found that some people want more, some people want less? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even in, with my, uh, you know, my own family, we found like, you know, we found a rhythm in things and a routine and, uh, you know, we, we can sort of tell when people are trying harder than they need to. But at the same time, I always remind myself they're trying to find, they need some purpose as well. And maybe they're finding purpose in this. And, but at the same time, I assure them like, don't, you know, don't worry too much about us. We're, we're, we're good for the most part, but you know, we always appreciate whatever you do. So, yeah. So, so you mentioned the, uh, four questions, is that just an arbitrary number that you pulled out? Or do you have these four questions that you go through with your, as you well, are in these conversations? Questions, but they're, they're different every time. So for example, we had a conversation. So I live in Virginia. My husband teaches at Southern Virginia university and we were having a conversation with the stake relief society presidency for the YSA stake just to kind of support each other. And one of the questions that they asked was, tell us about what your experience was as a YSA. Hmm. And so the person, you know, each of us would take a question, we would share that experience and then open it up to the sisters to share their experience. That was fascinating because, you know, most of the women on that call were in their forties and fifties, maybe their sixties. And it's very easy, very easy to say, oh, well, everybody else had an idyllic YSA experience. And then everybody started talking and you're like, oh my goodness, like every single one of these women who are these faithful, devout women now in their 40s and 50s and 60s, most of them, in fact, all of us had had some really difficult challenges when we were that age. One woman's mother died when she was 18. Another person felt completely alienated, like no one cared about her and just recognizing that that time of life for YSAs is just difficult and probably no one's having an idyllic experience. And so that was very revealing and inspiring. And the spirit came and we all felt very connected to each other just by asking those open-ended questions. Yeah. And so really it's just maybe as a pregnancy or whatever context you're in, figuring out some of the the powerful questions, not necessarily because we sort of want to figure out, uh, okay, what do they need and what can I do for them? But instead go to what questions can I approach them with that could maybe de- you know create connection through a deeper conversation? Yeah, it really was because I think that you know, right now there isn't necessarily a lot to do, but people want to feel connected and supported. So by just being, sometimes they want to feel connected and supported. Sometimes they feel supported enough. Like one woman I minister to, she has like 10 children. She's like, Whitney, I don't need you to call me. All 10 of my children are calling me. We're good. But I think <laughs> lots of people are like, yes, we, we do want to feel that sense of connectedness. Yeah. And you talk about in, uh, in your book about, uh, is the the S curve concept as far as um, when we're disrupted, there's a certain learning curve that we need to go through. And um, 
and that's what people are experiencing right now, right? Before they they felt like, yeah, I sort of have a handle on my calling, I know what to do. But really, what they're doing is they're trying to discover a, a new um, ability that. Yeah, in these absolutely. circumstances, right? Yeah, so you've got this S curve, and and you know, just in your brain, you think of the low end of that S curve is like the launch point where you don't quite know what you're doing, and then you get to the sweet spot, that steep part of it, and you're like, oh yeah, I've got this, and then you get to the high, and you're like, I've really got that, and this is when you get released, and then you get a brand new calling. So that's what happens in your callings. But to your point. Um, for people who felt like they had it figured out, like we're all at the launch point of our S curve. I mean, just the other night we had our stake council and our stake president, he said, okay, so we want to talk about state conference. Like, what do we want state conference to look like? We're going to do a virtual state conference. And so we're all kind of brainstorming and saying, well, what do we want it to look like? Let's do stuff that we can't do when we're in person. Uh Like, do we do polls? You know, do we have, you know, what does that, what does that look like? How do we make it more interactive and really using this disruption, this constraint that we have to create something different and new that we could never do if we were meeting in person? Yeah. And really, do you see it as sort of a, a shift in, in mindset? Because you can look at those limitations and be frustrated by them and, and maybe just wait it out. Or you can say, what's the innovation here? What can we discover that maybe we'll even keep doing after you know, normalcy has been restored or regular church attendance been restored. Absolutely. I mean, I think to me, that's the thrilling thing. And, you know, I, I love so. So one of the things that one of the the. Um, stages or steps of disruption is this notion of embracing your constraints. And we, we know, I mean, one of our favorite scriptures is second Nephi two eleven. there is opposition in all things. I mean, we need to have some sort of constraint to create. I mean, that is why we're here on this earth and things are difficult is so that we can create ourselves and people who are worthy to, to, you know, return to heavenly father's presence. And so I, I think this is what's exciting. And, and this notion, and in fact, you know, I, I started to, mentioned to you a couple of um, months ago, I was, um, the Rome Italy mission asked me to come in and present this framework of disruption to them. And so we did. And I found out that they are being incredibly innovative with how they're teaching. And some of the missionaries are teaching more now from their computer than they were when they could tract. And another missionary put together a video, an entire video doing a remake of man's search for meaning. Right. Is that yeah, what yeah. it is? Uh-huh. Remember that I think video? So, yeah, yeah video? I do. Yeah, or man, yeah. man search for happiness. Anyway, I'm getting confused with Victor Frankl. <laughs> yeah, and, but and the church know, made it a few times, right? Yeah, like it's you a know classic. what I'm talking about, right? Yes, absolutely. They completely redid it on their phone and then posted <laughs> it online. And I'm like, that is a constraint. If they'd been out tracting, they would never have been desperate enough. You know, necessity <laughs> is the mother of innovation. What are we going to do? And what I think is exciting about this is that you've got all these digital natives. Missionary work was already really stalling, certainly in the United States. You can't get into people's houses. And this COVID-19 is just going to accelerate how we do missionary work. And that constraint will become a tool of creation. And that to me is exciting. Yeah. And and I love to hear those stories of different innovative ideas, especially in missionary work. And a lot of the time, like obviously that constraint comes, but would you say there's a certain level of permission needed from like uh, maybe the mission president whether it's encouraging, encouraging or stimulating that, right? And uh, and that permission really enables people. I think I definitely, I think there's some element of that. I mean, there has to be this, this, this sense of safety. And, and from what I remember, I mean, this is um, president and sister Smith. I mean, they're really encouraging their missionaries to innovate, but 
one of the things I think is exciting or not, but, and if you start to look at the history of the church, a lot of the major innovations have come not from the prophet, but from yeah. ground up. I mean, whether it's seminary, whether it's the addiction recovery program, whether it's Relief Society, whether it's the ward mission plan, those were all innovations that started with individual members of the church. Super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the more we can create that safety and it's amazing the ideas that can come out. I, I, I mean, I don't, the mission president could have sat around for weeks and weeks and he would have never come up with some of these ideas right. that his missionaries are doing. Right. right. And then when they did so, it, they, they celebrated it and said, go get them. And so yeah. then the missionaries do more of it. Yeah. And so, um, when you present to like that, that mission in, in Rome, yeah. um, like, was there a certain, um, certain principles that you walked into that, that discussion with, or, uh, how did that go and what, what did you learn from it or what yeah. principles came to the surface? Well, first of all, I, I just remember when we first started, um, and you know, we said an opening prayer, I just remember I felt the spirit really strongly. And so it was just this reminder. It's been a long time since I've been a missionary. And so just this uh -huh. reminder of how God is really caring for and aware of his missionaries. So I would say that was the first really wonderful experience for me that I had. Um, but what I did is I basically walked the missionaries through the seven point framework of personal disruption. So like this idea mm -hmm. of taking the right risks of taking on competitive versus market risk, and more specifically, the notion of when you're, when you're disrupting, you're focusing on creating versus competing. And so in, as they're going throughout their work, um, how do you play where no one else is playing like this video? And you think about this notion of creation. I mean, we spend a lot of our time in the temple learning about creation. We know Elder Uchtdorf said, you know, the deepest yearning of the human soul is to create. And so I talked about, okay, so here you are, you've been disrupted, you've got to play somewhere. Why not play where no one else is playing and really focus on creating rather than competing with how you think your mission should have been? Because your mission is totally different than what they thought. So don't compete with the expectation of what you thought it should have been, but instead say, here is what is what am I going to create? And so I took people through each of those that take the right risk, create versus compete, um, and then try to, when I could, bring in a scripture um, that would summarize it. And one of my favorite quotes, and this is not a scripture, but this notion of amateurs compete and professionals create, and just mm. getting people to think and apply these business principles, providing scriptures where possible um, to just help them think about, okay, so what can I do? Like, here's a framework I've been describing disrupted what how can this framework help me see my way forward yeah no that's powerful and and i appreciate that sort of the the challenge of creating because what, what i've seen generally speaking is a lot of leaders feel like it's their responsibility to sort of spiritually entertain like okay we're gonna do this zoom thing you know like let's get to get as a ward and do this zoom thing or whatever it is or, or they feel like well, we've got to engage them somehow in the gospel and so we'll have a testimony meeting online or whatever but instead of shifting that to more of like how can we actually challenge those in our words to create something that's actually going to add to our overall culture regardless if we're attending church regularly or not right so yeah that's a, a powerful process to go through yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Anything else as far as the disruption, you know, your research and disruption goes? I know we've we've talked a whole podcast on it, but in this context, anything that you wanted to hit on before we move on? Yeah, I think one other thing I, I would like to just talk about briefly, because I think this is really important in the context of what's happening right now, is just, you know, if you think about the theory of disruptive innovation, I mean, basically what you're doing is you're saying, if I've got this sort of vertical line that I'm calling the y-axis, I might be at a a 12 on that. And my life, my church life is sort of over one, up one, over one, up one. And, and when you choose to disrupt yourself, you're basically moving down that Y from a 12 to an eight, because you believe that in the future, you can be over one, up three or over one, up five. And, hmm. and one of the things I think about with this current disruption, this idea of stepping back to slingshot forward, um, I, I think a lot about not only from a standpoint of, of sort of that theory that I just presented, but two other thoughts for me anyway, is that as we've had to step back, as we've been forced back, it's really an opportunity for us to reflect and to think about, okay, so what do I want to be able to say about this period in time that we probably will never have again? What do I want to say? What do I want my legacy to be? What do I want to have created in that time period? How do I want to reflect on it? And then the other thing that I thought has been really interesting is I came across a book um, called 24-6 by an author named Tiffany Schlain, and she talks about the idea of a tech Shabbat and the importance of of unplugging. And one of the things she describes, and she's Jewish, um, you know, Jewish culturally, not practicing culturally, but she talks about a tech Shabbat being a force field of protection that gives us the strength the resilience, the perspective, and the energy for the other six days. And so for me, it was important as you talk about this idea of personal disruption, it's this notion of stepping back to slingshot forward, the importance of reflecting, of of writing in your journal, asking yourself, what am I learning? And then just really reinforcing this notion of keeping the Sabbath day holy. Um, When, you know, during this time, we talk about the Sabbath day and We've done it our whole lives, but there is scientific research that suggests that when you will take that step back once a week, you can slingshot forward from a productivity standpoint, from a stress reduction standpoint. And so just, I think, reinforcing the fact that this time that we're taking right now, this step back, if we will use it properly, we really can as individuals. And I believe as a church, slingshot forward. Yeah, no, man, I love that concept, and and really, like you, people can hear these concepts, you know, in our church culture, and think, oh, well, we got that Sabbath day thing down, you know, and but it gets to a point where it's so routine that it maybe on paper it feels like we're stepping back, but we're really not stepping back. Like, yeah, we're not running out to a movie or you know hitting Denny's up or anything, but uh, it can be so routine that you've you've lost the meaning in it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the things I love about. The work that I do is that there are, like you said, these things that we just have always done. And it's so fun and so exciting when you can kind of go into the secular and academic research and all this work that people have done and arrive at this conclusion and go, oh, that's why. And I remember Tad Collister in his book that, you know, Defense of the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah. He said he said something to the effect of, you know, academic research and intellectual understanding is certainly not enough to convince you that it's true, but it certainly can do an excellent job of bolstering what you already believe in faith. And I, and I love it when we can, when we can have that scientific to back up what we already believe to be true. Yeah. 
And so how, how do you go about or what have you found is helpful as far as making sure you are really stepping back uh, in, in, in order to gain the benefits of doing oh, that? Oh, 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 don't get me started, but do get me started. So <laughs> That's why we're here. So. Yeah, exactly. So it's a great question because I, I love to work. Um, I would probably, I've been called a workaholic and I think that is a fair and accurate depiction of who, you know, descriptor of who I am. One of the things though I found is that, you know, because of my work, it's very stressful. And so one of the things I have started doing is that on Saturday night around, I don't unplug from all technology, but on Saturday night around nine o'clock, I use boomerang and I put all my email on pause and my Mm -hmm. text messages. And I don't check it again until Monday morning around noon. So that, um, I probably don't do text because that's more church, but my email, I don't check it. I don't read it. I don't do any of that on Sunday um, mm-hmm. because I know that if I will take that step back and put myself in a more spiritual place, um, I will get the regeneration that I need in order to move forward in my life. So that's the one, like really that has been huge is to not check my work email on Sunday and not, not to work. The other thing that I have done is to try to make sure I'm writing in my journal obviously reading the scriptures and going to church and all that good stuff. But I've also been really trying to do family history. Um, I was just, this just happened this week is, you know, president Nelson, I'm re-listening to his hear him talk. So once I get a conference mm. talk, that's meaningful to me, I listen to it over and over and over again. Cause I want it to like get in my head. And he talked <laughs> about how we need to go to the temple. And I was like, well, okay, yeah, I'll go to the temple when I can go to the temple again. And he's like family history. And I'm like, Oh, So I can do family history on Sunday, but if I would go to the temple on a Saturday, what if I started doing family history on Saturday too? Mm. So I'm trying to just on Sunday, you know, President Nelson said it could be a delight. So I'm trying to turn off my email, do work, spend time talking as a family, um, doing church stuff so that by the end of the day, it really does feel like a delight. And it's starting to feel that way. And I am so grateful. Yeah. You know, I've, I've experienced, you know, going back to journaling, I've experienced uh, great benefits from just a regular journaling routine. But a lot of people, you know, they, they think journaling and they remember their mom, like forcing them to do it when they were 10 and just writing about random things. So I'm curious, what uh, what tools or approaches have you uh, applied to help you journal? Like, how would you coach someone who's wondering how to journal effectively? Yeah. Okay. So I have, I'll give a coaching thing and then I want to read you a quote. So um, the first thing I would do is just at the end of your day. So we've been talking a lot about creating and competing in this conversation. And so this is something that I do with my coaching clients is um, at the end of the day, write down your best moment and your worst moment. And then ask yourself to what extent in that moment, my best moment was I creating versus competing And in my worst moment, to what extent was I creating versus competing? So you can do it pretty fast. And then what's something that I want to do better tomorrow? So that's a start on the journaling. Yeah. And and you can start there and like, that's all you do in the beginning, right? Yeah. And then you're done. And then, um, and then this is something that I learned from a fellow named Bob Cancolosi, where he recommends that every 50 pages in your journal, you go back and just look at some of the highlights And when you do that, you're like, wow, I am learning a lot. Like you realize you've got a lot of insights. Um, But those just simple things of like, how did I create? How did I compete? That's allowing you to start tracking 
in your life and be more in your life. And I love this from President Kimball. So I'm going to read this to you. He said, what could you do better for your children and your children's children than to record the story of your life, your triumphs over adversity, your recovery after a fall, your progress when all seemed black, your rejoicing when you had finally achieved. Um, That's big and that's bold and that's grand. But I think as a pure starting point, and again, especially because we're at the low end of this S curve of learning, it's easy to not be aware. But if you will take even that one minute to reflect, you're going to be like, wow, I'm learning a lot right now. And this is, this is great. It's a great time to be learning. Yeah. And so is this something you do uh, regularly just like before you go to bed at night? I do. I do. Nice. Every night. Yeah. Cool. And are you, uh, do you have a specific journal? I mean, do you, uh, you handwrite things, um, right? Or- yeah, I handwrite, you know what? I go through phases. Like sometimes I buy journals that are more programmatic and then I also have journals. Um, well, I'm going to show it to you even though no one can see it, but I love like, I love paper that has like all the squares on it oh, and yeah. I like, and I just like to write on those, but it's, I don't know. I just, whatever. I like blank page kind of things and I could just write and see what right. comes out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know what else I do? I think the quick tip, um, whenever I get a priesthood blessing from my husband, typically it's from my husband or setting apart blessing is I always record it and then I get it transcribed huh. so that you nice. have a transcription of your priesthood blessings. Nice. Yeah. And you refer back to it, right? Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. It becomes yeah. part of your canon of scripture. Cool. That's awesome. Um, any, anything else as far as the, uh, Disruption. Is the this well the disruption, but more specifically the um, the the Sabbath that you know the really emphasizing making Sabbath. Uh, what did President Nelson say? A delight, right? Yeah. Um, okay. I, now that you asked me, I'm going to read you one more quote because All I right, love thinking about this. So a couple of years ago, I found this book called Sabbath. It was by a a, um, a, a man named Wayne Muller, and I, I think he's Protestant. I don't know. He's Christian uh-huh. denomination. I'm not sure which. And he um, was quoting a guitarist by the name of Oscar Castro Nevis. And here's what he said. And so I'm going to read this to you, but I want you to think of this in the context of the Sabbath. Here's what he said. It is common in a dramatic scene to gradually bring the music to crescendo and then stop, rest, silence. Whatever is spoken on the screen in silence is heard more clearly, more powerfully. The words are lent an additional potency because they are spoken out of silence. When you listen to music, listen to the cadence of rest. Martin Luther King, who I think this is appropriate right now, the most famous speech of his life, listen to the cadence, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Hmm. All because of the rest. And that's what the Sabbath day is for us. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm glad. I don't know if you just have these quotes all over, but I'm glad you have them (laughs) handy because these are powerful. So that's awesome. I like quotes. I have like a thousand favorite quotes. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, shifting gears a little bit here, just, uh, you know, with the recent focus on discussion around race and these items, uh, I know you've you've uh, blogged a lot about it or in your newsletter and whatnot. Um, what have you learned and, and what what journey are you going through as, as you're reflecting on this uh, this topic right now? Such a great such a great question. So I had a really interesting experience. Um, I don't know how many weeks ago it's been, but it was right after George Floyd was, was murdered. And 
And I remember I, I'm very active on social media and I had two of my colleagues, one white and one black say to me, what are you going to post about this? And I said, well, nothing. They're like, you have to post something. I was like, well, why? And then I started thinking and I started reflecting and I had this moment and I really think it was a spiritual prompting and impression that was basically, Whitney, how would you feel if you, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, were being persecuted and everybody you love who's a member of the church was being persecuted and everybody you know who is your friend was saying nothing to you? Not, how are you doing? I'm thinking of you. I'm worried about you. Just nothing. How would you feel? And I had that moment of like, I would feel terrible. I would feel terrible. And so there was this thing of, I have to, I have to say something. So I did. That got me in this place of really thinking. I felt very strongly about it. And I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who's white. Her son is um, biracial. Father is black. Her son, father black. And she said to me, Whitney, you need to understand that this awakening that you are having is causing deep pain for every black person in this country because they have been saying for years and decades and decades that things aren't okay. But then she said, and this is what I loved so much. She said, Whitney, you, it's not your fault for what you didn't know and what you weren't aware of. And this goes to the idea of repentance and how, how merciful God is. She said, but now that you do know, this is that place of, of redemption. This is sacred space. And so the question you have to ask yourself is what will you do now? And so that for me is the question I'm trying to answer and not just, you know, put up some post on social media and flagellate myself. Oh, I'm bad, bad, bad. And not do anything, not be different, but really over the next year, how will I think? How will I act? How will I show up? Who will I hire? And do the work of figuring out how do you have a conversation when you're white with someone who's black and when you're black, who's white, what does that look like? And I do believe, Kurt, that if we as members of the church are really willing to humble ourselves, um, we can contribute in a very meaningful way to righting some of these wrongs. And so that's experience I've been having. Um, and I'm very grateful. I guess the last thing that I will say is I remember having a moment of feeling so grateful for the atonement of Jesus Christ, right. of recognizing that there are so many hurts that people have and so many misunderstandings that no one will ever be able to repair. And yet feeling this gratitude of knowing that because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, those, those sorrows will be taken away and those tears um, will be wiped away. And I was just very, very grateful for, for his atoning sacrifice. Wow. That's powerful. And, and, you know, you know, just as a reflect on what you said, like it, it really is this exercise of, of empathy and, and realizing that we, you know, we sort of throw these words around like empathy or, you know, when it really is a journey more than just like a state of mind that you just snap into. Right. And, and just you articulating that is sort of, it it patiently like unfolded in your life and showed you more light and and understanding and perspective and then you followed it and now you've had a deeper you know your faith's been deeper or deepened because of this right yeah absolutely and and you know i realized too that for us to make this journey 
you know, as being white, I have to be, and you have to be willing to make this journey and receive the feedback. But I'm also realizing that if you're black, um, there, it will require a lot of grace and willingness to, to speak up and to provide that grace as we're trying to figure this all out and how to do things differently. So there's going to be required, I think, a lot of grace on, on the part of, of really of everybody and grace and patience. And again, this is where, where we're so grateful for the gospel. Yeah, for sure. Uh, anything, any topic or subject or point or quote that uh, we didn't get to <laughs> that, uh, that you want to make sure we fit in here? Um, you know, I think, yeah, I, I want to share one other, one other, two other quotes with you. Love so, it. so, um, one is that I think, you know, the, one of the, the steps of this framework is this notion of being driven by discovery of being willing to take a step forward to gather feedback and adapt. And this is really part of the creation process that we all are undergoing as human beings. I mean, God wants us to fulfill the measure um, of our creation. And so one quote that I really love, and then I'll share a final scripture is this um, idea. And this is from Wallace D. Waddles at the turn of the, the 20th century. He said, God wants us to live an abundant life. Every living thing must continually seek for the enlargement of life and the mere act of living. It must increase itself. A seed dropped in the ground springs into activity and in the act of living produces a hundred more seeds. Life by living multiplies itself. It is forever becoming more. It must continue to do so to exist. And I, I just love that this idea of creation and how God wants to bring to pass our immortality. And, 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 and I, and I'll, I'll finish with this because this is a quote that I love from Elder Holland. He said, um, and I'm paraphrasing the first great, um, um, uh, first great commandment of all eternity is that we need to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. But the first great truth is that God loves us with all his heart, might, mind, and strength. And I love that. And I, I just take so much comfort in that and, and knowing that God loves us. And if we can even begin to love ourselves, love everyone that we go to church with, everyone in the world, even, you know, and a small nanoparticle as much as he does, I think that we will be able to um, really just know how much he loves us. So that's, it's a quote I love. And I, I share that with you to wrap up. Perfect. Uh, now, if people aren't as familiar with your work and we need to squeeze in here as far as another plug for Clay Christensen, uh, if you if you haven't read his power of everyday missionaries, that would be a great book to start with. And also, um, Oh, what's his book? The uh, How Will You Measure Your Life? Is yes. that the exact yeah, title? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, those, those are two, two good books for people who have who've been listening to this podcast. Those are two books that you definitely would want to pick yeah. up. And if you're a business and innovation geek, uh, that list is long uh, that you can yeah, jump yeah. into his writings. Yeah, you, can, you can read. I, I think for me, his best book is is like the classic book, The Innovator's Dilemma. And then the book yeah. that I wrote was just sort of building on that is a book called Disrupt Yourself, where you're applying these ideas to you as an individual. Nice. And if people want to follow you, I mean, you're a fellow podcaster yourself. Oh, yes. I have a great podcast. Yeah, yeah. What, what else do you want to plug here? Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. So I think <laughs> um, you can go to uh, WhitneyJohnson.com and just, or listen to our podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, it's called Disrupt Yourself. And um, I think, you know, really focusing on what we're happy what's happening right now. I think it's episode 153. It's called Keep Planting Cherry Trees, which is a, a riff on when Brigham Young and Wilford Woodruff were crossing the plains and the importance of, even though it feels like the world's coming, world's coming to end, we need to just keep planting cherry trees. So you can listen yeah. to that episode. 
Awesome. All right. The final question I have for you, Whitney, yeah. is uh, as you reflect back during this uh, pandemic time and and uh, you're, you get another round of disruption in your life, how has that made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? So I think it's made me a better follower because um, it's it's caused me to ask myself, do I really believe that God is in charge? And um, because I think we all continually have to ask ourselves that question. And I just remember when President Nelson came out, this first sort of statement, um, and just thinking to myself, I'm so grateful for our prophet. And just knowing that he is leading us, it's under the um, under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's just reinforced my faith and my gratitude of knowing that there is a plan and that all will eventually be well. And I'm just very, very grateful for that. That concludes my interview with Whitney Johnson. A big thank you to her. It's individuals like these, like influencers, like Whitney Johnson, who is paid to go all around the world to share her perspective and knowledge. And it's always great having her on the podcast like this. But I don't think you quite understand just how much support these individuals give us as an organization of leading saints. You know, just after we hit the or stop the recorder, she gave me a list of names of individuals I could reach out to that would be phenomenal guests and uh, it would add to the perspective here at Leading Saints. So I just a big thank you to all those individuals who see what we're trying to do and contribute in such valuable ways. And definitely those books we mentioned with from Clay Christensen and Whitney's books, like these are must reads. Like if I was to create a list and someday I will of the top 50 books that leaders need to read, like church leaders need to read or lay leaders need to read, like this would the Hera Brooks would be on it, along with Clayton Christensen's. They're just so impactful, inspiring, and uh, like like Whitney, you'll you'll walk away with a ton of quotes and to reflect on, and uh, definitely very valuable. I'd love to hear of anybody else you think that we should interview at, on the Leading Saints podcast. Be fun, especially in our How I Lead segments. So uh, you know whether it's a Relief Society president, a Young Women's president, a High Council. Uh, high counselor, any of these random callings that we have, if there's a sort of a standout individual who's definitely disrupting in a positive way, uh, being a positive deviant in some of these in some of these callings, uh, maybe reach out to me at leadingsaints.org/contact and uh, let me know, and we'd love to reach out to them and see if they'd be open to an interview. And then finally, be sure to put this link in an email, share it with somebody you know who could benefit from not only this one but many other episodes at Leading Saints. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 to gain access to remarkable interviews in the Questioning Saints library so that you are better prepared to minister to those who've begun to question their faith. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.